Well, there's no doubt that uh, we live in a highly technical age. Uh, we're living at a time when there's been more advances in technology than at any other time in human history. I mean, think about some of the things that we've seen just in fairly recent years. Uh, space travel, uh, putting the first man into space. Uh, took place in 1961. Uh, by 1969, they were putting a man on the moon. Uh, now, the advancement has been that they've actually got a spacecraft uh, doing research for us on the planet Mars. And there's even talk of possibly putting people to live on the planet Mars at some stage in the future. Uh, then there are things like personal computers. Uh, back in the 1980s, personal computers cost a small fortune and no one had them in their homes. But nowadays, everybody's got a computer. They seem to be in every home. Uh, mobile phones, I'm not sure whether or not you can remember these, once they used to look like this and they were the size of a small briefcase uh, and all they could do was make telephone calls sometimes. But nowadays, they look like this. And not only are they a mobile phone, it's also your diary. Uh, you keep notes on there as well. You take photos with this. You don't have a street directory anymore because this will show you the map and show you how to get to where you need to go to. All of that in a mobile phone. But what seems to happen wherever we see that growth in technology, there also seems to be that growth in human pride as well. People become convinced that the advances in, in science and technology, that they will be the things that will improve our life, that fix all of our problems, deal with everything that's wrong with the world that we live in. People believe that technological breakthroughs will be the saviour of the world. But that kind of thinking is not new. That's exactly what we see at the Tower of Babel. And that's, what, that's the passage that we're going to focus on this morning. But before we do, uh, back in chapter 10, you've got another genealogy, another list of descendants. This time, it's Noah's descendants. Uh, we're told about Noah and his three sons, and from there, the population of the earth is beginning to grow. Now, again, it's very tempting to just look at these lists and dismiss them as a bunch of boring names of people that we've never heard of. But we're given some important information in these chapters about the people who are going to fill the earth. Some of the names that come up here are names that are going to come up later on in Genesis and even beyond the book of Genesis. This is not just a list of names. We're told about a fairly select group of people in these verses. Seventy nations are represented, seventy people groups that will populate the earth. This is not everyone who lived after the time of Noah. This is not everyone who lives after the time of the Tower of Babel. That number 70 comes up a few times in the pages of the Bible. It's kind of a number of completeness that often gets used in the Bible. So I think we're told about this select group of nations, this select group of people. But they're the people who've descended from Noah. And in a sense, Noah stands as the new Adam, doesn't he? That he's the one who's been told to spread out to fill the earth. We're introduced to all of these nations, but have a look in chapter 10, verse 15, if you, if you know the nations of the Old Testament, if you know the nations that were living in the land when Joshua and the people of Israel went to move in, uh, these names might sound familiar. Chapter 10, verse 15, Canaan, 
was the son of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinaites, the Abadites, the Semarites, and the Hamathites. Those first few nations, uh, Canaan himself, uh, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, they're all the people who were living in the land at the time at which Joshua and the people of Israel are moving in. We're not just being told about the nations of the earth, we're also being told here that the numbers have grown fairly dramatically. There's now a lot of people living on the earth. And you get a kind of summary there at the end of chapter 10. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nation. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Then we turn to chapter 11 and we get a crucial piece of information right at the beginning of the chapter there. Have a look at those first two verses of chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now we've heard from chapter 10 that the numbers have been growing, but we hear at the beginning of chapter 11 that there's still just one language. They're one people as they move about. And then we read that they've stopped spreading. They've decided that they're going to settle on the plain of Shinar. Now that may look innocent enough, but look at what happens next, verse 3. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now there's three important things to note in these verses here. It may seem innocent enough, but I don't think it is. So the first problem comes with that we can do it attitude. They've fallen prey to their technological pride. It's not mobile phones, it's baking bricks. Verse 3, they said, come, let us but let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly and use bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now this is a pretty significant technological breakthrough, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine how this would speed up the construction process? That it's no longer a matter of going to the quarry and trying to carve out those blocks of stone. If you need more building material, you just bake them. You can have them on Wednesday if you like. It, it happens very, very quickly. But it's the pride that goes with it that's also the problem. Because look at what it says in verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens that we may make a name for ourselves. That we can do it attitude. It's that pride and arrogance that's crept in there that's overtaken them. But they've got the technology, nothing can stop them. And did you notice that God doesn't write a mention? It's all about what they will do. They're ignoring God and thinking that they can do it themselves. But it's not simply that they're ignoring God. There's more to it than that. They're blatantly defying God in what they're doing here. They, they're ignoring what God told them to do. God told Adam and Eve that they were to fill out to fill the earth, they were to spread out over, over the face of the earth. Then God told Noah that they were to fill the earth, they were to spread out over the face of the earth. 
But do you see what they're doing here? They've made up their own mind that they're not going to spread out. They're going to gather together in a city on this plain in China. They're consciously refusing to do what God told them to do. They're ignoring what God told them to do. And they know that they're doing that. Look at what it says in verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, don't be fooled by this decision. It's not as if they're saying, you know what, city life is preferable to country life. That's not what they're doing. That's not what they're saying. They're making a choice in direct defiance of God. God's told them to spread out and they're saying, you know what, God? We've got a better idea. We're going to stick together. And they want to make a name for themselves. But it goes one step further than that. It's more than just pride. It's more than just defying God. They're really making a grab for heaven here, aren't they? I mean, isn't that what they want to do? They want to build a tower that will make a name for themselves They want to build a tower that will reach up to heaven. They want to become equal to God. They want to become God themselves. I think it's amazing that you can have a huge group of people who are wanting to make exactly the same mistake as Adam and Eve. That was what they were doing when they reached out for the fruit, wasn't it? Wasn't that the temptation that they gave into? That if they eat that fruit, that they will be like God. That's what the serpent said to them. And what stands at the heart, ultimately, of all sin, isn't it? Is thinking that we can be like God. That we can decide for ourselves. Well, here we are, another desperate grab at being like God. But this time, not just Adam and Eve. But all the people are wanting to do this. It's funny when you compare a passage like this to what Paul says about Jesus in the pages of the New Testament. See, Paul talks about the humility of Jesus in what he comes to do and it it seems to be in complete contrast to Adam and Eve and also to the people at the Tower of Babel. Uh, Here's the passage. It comes from um, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this of Jesus, he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The people at Babel, what are they doing? They're wanting to make a name for themselves. They're wanting to make this grasp at being like God. But here's Jesus, the one who is God, and he doesn't feel the need to grasp at equality with God. In fact, he's willing to humble himself. And it's God who makes Jesus' name great. It's God who gives him the name that is above every name. See, the problem with the Tower of Babel is those three things. Mankind has become arrogant about his own achievements. He's defying God by saying, we're not spreading out, we're staying here, thanks anyway, God. 
And ultimately, they're making that grasp at being like God. So mankind now thinks he has the technology, he has the plan, and construction is underway. Well, that's what's going on down here on earth. But what's happening up in heaven at this point? How does God respond to all of this? Well, I think verse 5 is one of the beautiful ironies in this passage. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. They think they're reaching all the way up into heaven, but God actually has to come down to see what's happening down here. You get the impression that God's actually got to find his reading glasses to see this tower because it's so tiny, it's so insignificant that it can't even really see it. But look at what God says. Verse 6. Verse 6 is what God says. If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Man's actions, while they may have been pathetic, the motive behind them is really dangerous. God says that if that's what they're capable of when they're speaking the, their own, the one language, then the best thing that we could do for them is confuse their languages. Now be careful that you don't misunderstand what God's saying here. It may sound as though God feels a little bit threatened by what man is capable of doing, but I don't think that's it at all. God confusing their language is partly God's judgment on them, but I think it's mostly God doing them a favour, doing what's best for them. I can remember walking into my office a few years ago and um, my youngest son was sitting in the office and as I walked up towards him, he had his back to me at the desk, but he heard me come in and I heard him say, look at what I can do, Daddy. And as I walked around to the side, I saw that he had my knife in his hand, one of these packing knives. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen those, but they're incredibly sharp. Uh, we use it for cutting things, obviously, in the office. But he had the full blade extended, he had his hand down on a piece of paper and was moving the blade very, very close to his hand. I could see a finger coming off here. It was definitely going to happen. Now, I went over and took the knife off him. Did I take it off him to punish him? Well, not really. Did he see it as a punishment? Well, I think he did. But I was doing him a favour taking this knife off him. I was making sure that he wasn't going to injure himself seriously. And I think that's what God's doing with the languages here. I'm sure there's an element in which God is punishing them for what they've done. God isn't going to tolerate people who want to make a grasp at being equal with him. But God's really doing them a favour. See, God knows that if they're capable of doing that trivial, silly thing, then what else might they be capable of doing? What other dangerous things might they involve themselves in? He stops them from doing anything really serious by giving them different languages to speak. Stops them from building the tower and spreads them out over the face of the earth. And there's that one last verse there, verse 9. 
That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. They were defying God by wanting to stick together, but now God gets them to do what he's commanded them to do anyway, and they spread out over the face of the whole earth. Now, when you look closely at this story in the Tower of Babel, I think it sounds a little bit like the world that we're living in, doesn't it? I think that we still live in a world where people think, if we can all pull together, we can sort out these problems, we can fix everything that's wrong with our world. There are people today, like at the Tower of Babel, who have this idea that technology or science or medicine that will fix everything that's wrong with our world. I mean, in recent years, it's been things like cloning and genetic engineering. There's this confidence among scientists that that we can solve the big problems, the big diseases in our world, possibly even deal with world hunger. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all in favour of those things. I I pray that there are great advances in science and medicine. I'm all in favour of finding cures for diseases and feeding the world. I have no problem with either of those things. But it's the pride that worries me. It's the arrogance that follows along with it that seems to be the attitude that says we really don't need God. We can do far better than him in this situation. Back in the late 1980s, Stephen Hawking wrote a book called A Brief History of Time. I've made several attempts to read it. I didn't get very far. My science from school wasn't going to permit me to read this book, I don't think. But uh, it was an enormously successful book. But Hawking finished the book by expressing the hope that if scientists would come up, could come up with a grand unifying theory of everything, and, and these were his closing words in the book, that if we could come up with that, then we would see into the mind of God. Now, Stephen Hawking professes to be an atheist, but that sounds a little bit like Babel thinking, doesn't it? that if scientists can just come up with this grand unifying theory of everything, well, that'll make us equal with God, won't it? Well, there's one thing that Stephen Hawking got right, and I think there's one thing they got right at the Tower of Babel as well. They recognise that there is a gulf between us and God. They recognise that there is that distance, and at that level they are correct. But the problem with Stephen Hawking thinking and the Tower of Babel thinking is that they think that we can bridge that gulf, that, that we can get there by ourselves, by our effort. Well, that's a game where they're both wrong. The gulf between man and God isn't going to be bridged from our end, but we should thank God that he bridges it from his end. See, God does it by sending his son to bridge that gap between man and God. He sent Jesus into this world to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. It might be science that will help us to see into the mind of God. If, if you want to really see into the mind of God, well, this is what the book of Hebrews says. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things 
by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You want to see into the mind of God? Then you look to Jesus. Because that's where you'll see the mind of God. That's where you will see God most clearly. We don't have to make desperate grasps at heaven. God has actually reached down to this world. God has come into this world in his son Jesus. God has bridged the gap by becoming man. Jesus came into this world to bridge that gulf between heaven and earth and to make it possible for us to know God. Join together and pray. Father, forgive us for thinking that we can fix our problems. Forgive us for thinking that we don't need you. Forgive us for pushing you out of the picture. And help us to remember that you are the God who has bridged that gap between heaven and earth. That we don't need to grasp at heaven because you've reached down into earth with your son Jesus. We don't have to guess what you are like because we see you clearly in your Son. Father, we want to pray that we would be people who do trust him and who do seek to honour you by following him in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.